Okay, my name is Carmen Lopez. And my name is Nick Higgins, the Director of Outreach Services at Brooklyn Public Library. And today is October 25th, 2016, and I'm here at the Central Brooklyn Public Library with Stephen Likowski for our Streets Are Stories Oral History Project focused on the justice system. So thank you so much for being here with okay, us. Okay, my pleasure. And uh, we are curious about your journey as a pioneer prison uh, librarian. Can you tell us about how and when you started this job? Sure. Um, I lived in Boston for many years, and I decided I wanted to move to New York. And there was an ad in the paper for a prison librarian um, by the New York Public Library. And it interested me because I guess when I was in library school, I did some research paper on prison librarianship. So um, I wanted to explore that further. Also, I was looking very much for a job that would be meaningful to me. And for many years, I've been like an active socialist in social activism and against the war in Vietnam and communal living, all that stuff. So I wanted something that kind of where I could work, um, you know, putting into practice some of my ideals or some of my, you know, political notions, whatever. And so I applied for the job and I got it the same day. So I was thrilled. When you arrived to the library, how was the, the dynamic in relation to being a prison librarian? Uh, there was a position that had been set up. Uh, so the library had investigated prisons and ways in which we could help them, the local jails especially, because their main date then was to work with the local jails, not the state prisons yet. And um, so there had been some you know, exploration of it as a field. Uh, the person that had a job before me, uh, he was probably the first prison librarian, and he um, used to go to the, the uh, adolescent facility, and rumor had it that he would, not, instead of going, he would go and play tennis, things of that sort. So I guess he wasn't maybe all that dedicated. But he did write an article, which I read, in um, a library journal about his experiences at the youth facility. And um, I found that very interesting. I remember him saying that uh, when Roots came out, um, he, he was bringing films out. So he showed the film Roots, and it caused almost like a, a lot of violence, and, or almost like a riot in the uh, adolescent facility, because there's so much anger and as a reaction to it. So I remember reading that. Um, so then, you know, I took on the job, and um, one of my um, colleagues took me out to the jails to show me what things were about. And then I was pretty much on my own, which I was a little scared at first, but in the long run, it turned out very well because I wasn't very, I, I, was, I wasn't really supervised very much. Um, so I was able to develop programs as I saw fit, and there were really large budgets back then. So I was able to bring out all sorts of programming. Um, Many of the institutions had libraries in place. They had a legal library and they had a general library. The legal libraries were mandated and the general libraries within the corrections uh, weren't mandated. So even though we were mandated to serve city corrections with library service, general library service, there is no mandate within city corrections except for with the adolescents to have any general library. So the rooms were there and the books were often, you know, giveaways like maybe Oh, I remember seeing maybe 100 copies of an accounting book from the 1930s, um, Reader's Digest, which had some nice books, but, you know, hardbacks and wonders of the world, things of that sort, but basically pretty shoddy. And uh, there were no librarians assigned, and, you know, office, if any good books came in offices, it was just taken for themselves. So that was the state of the libraries uh, when they first went out. Um, so the, the big challenge was to convince them of the need of of my being there and of bringing out library service. And back then, um, most of the officers, um, the staff were kind of white, and you had a jail population, maybe 95% black and Hispanic. Um, so there wasn't all that much empathy, or sympathy towards people coming in from the outside at all. 
and there was always a tension between security staff people and then because security staff people and those in for rehabilitation. So initially, a lot of the officers would see me as like a bleeding hard liberal, and they wouldn't take me seriously. They didn't realize librarianship is a profession, whatever, and um, they didn't think the inmates deserved any of these services. And they felt that why should inmates get any service when they can hardly afford to send their kids to college, whatever. So you had to kind of play politics and you had to get the cooperation of the officers for sure because they could really subvert your project by not uh, offering you like a, um, what do you call it? Uh, you need somebody uh, to bring you in a uh, clearance. You uh, need clearance for sure. Right. And they need a escort. An escort, right. So they could easily say there's no escort available and have you standing there for three hours if they wanted to. So you kind of had to convince them that it's in their interest for you to come in and work with the inmates. What year was this? 1980, yeah. And, you know, it was easy to convince them to one degree because 90% um, of the people I worked with were detainees, so there were no programs for them or education, whatever, except for the adolescents, so that there was a lot of time in their hands. And many of the people who were in, de in detention had been rounded up at work and just brought to jail, so their families often had I find out where they were located, and you know they would um, no longer have an income to families because the oftentimes the men were you know just suddenly brought into detention, and uh, there was a tremendous need to find lawyers, and there weren't that many lawyers available, um, so there's a lot of tension. Um, so books would be from the officer's point of view, books could serve as a pacifier and you know, keep inmates busy. So in that way, they kind of relented, you know, and were more cooperative. And then over a period of time, most, many of the officers hired were then from the minority communities, and some of them, I'd say the majority, were more sympathetic, and it changed the environment. Others felt they had to be even harsher than the white officers just to prove themselves, but that generally it made a positive difference to have more female and uh, minority officers. Did you, you mentioned the, the mandate. Where did the mandate then come from? From the State Education Department. And it was for all public library systems to serve their local jails. Um, and there was a fellow named Finney, Bernard Finney, who worked um, in the Department of Education. He was a poet, an African-American guy, and very you know, colorful personality. And he used to come and visit maybe once a year and come with me to the jails and recite his poetry. And then he actually published some really wonderful poetry, which I would purchase and we'd, we'd you know, bring him to the libraries and he'd give them sometimes to the inmates. So he was very uh, supportive of um, this guy from Albany. Yeah. Um, what do you think are the biggest challenges that incarcerated people face? Ex the people coming out or people in? People? in inside. Oh, inside. Well, enormous. <laughs> the challenges of, of librarians working inside or inmates uh, themselves? Inmates themselves oh. and how your role as a librarian can... You know, well, the biggest them. challenge is figuring out how to get out. <laughs> Nobody wants to be in jail. Uh, there are people that don't mind being in jail and that's sad. Um, so you have some inmates who are able to function within jail because they're there very often and they know people and they know the system and they can work it. And yet when they come out, they're totally lost. And you ask them to go for an interview, I mean, they, they don't even have to present themselves. So you have that type of inmate, if I'm a stereotype, and you have the majority of inmates who really don't want to be there. So one concern is finding lawyers or, or finding help in how to get out. And the other thing is dealing with... Um, the internal dynamics of relationships with the officers, relationships with, with fellow inmates. So it's very generally very unpleasant experience for most people to be in jail. And there's a lot of bravado, but you know it, it's just superficial. You know, officers tell me when they bring adolescents upstate, 
you know, even though they may come out of the community and brag they've been in jail, it's like a badge of honor, I mean, most of them just go to bed crying in their beds by themselves in the cells or really scared going upstate. So, you know, there's a, you know, would, you, you may go in and feel these people kind of loud and rowdy and, you know, macho or whatever, but underneath it, there's a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty. And what are the things that you have done um, as a librarian, like specifically? Yeah, well, before connections, I'd say, you know, the first thing was to establish libraries in the facilities, or if they had the rooms to stock them, and maybe, and there I tried getting inmate help as well, um, you know, to work with the libraries and help me set them up. And some of the program officers were very cooperative. I mean, they weren't all negative, because, it, it, you know, it looked good for them also. And again, there was less violence in the institution if they were able to have, you know, diversions for the inmates. And some really uh, appreciated the fact that inmates should have a chance to read and to educate themselves and to change their path of life. So um, this is, I was the only person for a few years. Um, and Rikers has at least 10 institutions. I had to kind of choose where to go. So at various times, I went to different institutions, both sentence, detention, women's, men's, adolescent, adult. Um, and that depended largely on my reception. Like I might have a really good library set up somewhere, and then there's a change of staff, like program director, and suddenly they have no concern about libraries or even want to get rid of, use the room for something else, like an officer's gym happened once or, or other things. So, you know, where I went depended on that. I did get the experience of working with in the hospital environment at Rikers, uh, with the AIDS wards, with um, women detention, adolescents, adults, all sorts of inmates, and that was you know broadening for me certainly. Uh, and the need was enormous, you know, in terms of inmates wanting to read and wanting books. Um, so you know, basically, as librarians, we try to serve the educational needs. So in that case, we bring out um, books, where, you know, they could learn more about themselves in the world. Um, and initially, there was a lot of problem with literacy. Um, within a short period of time, a book started coming out called, um, what was it, High, low, um, High Interest Low Level Reading. And inmates initially wouldn't tell me they couldn't read. They would just not approach me if I had a book truck or, if they, or they wouldn't come to the library. And within like five, six, seven years, inmates would come up and say, I can't read, what do you have for me? And it was kind of demeaning to read children's books, so eventually publishers picked up on it as a field for possible profit, and they started publishing adult material at lower reading levels in literacy programs, and, you know, lifelong learning came into being, and that made a big difference in terms of um, inmates wanting to being able to get involved in, in the library. And then in terms of information, um, um, in the city, as well as in the state especially, but spe in the city, inmates need information, like where to find a lawyer, um, you know, where they get all sorts of help when they are released. Um, so, and that's very hard to come by in jails. So, um, the library was able to serve inmates informationally that way. And then when AIDS hit, it was really important because there was tremendous paranoia in the jails. So that, um, you know, in terms of AIDS prevention, the library took on a very important role in bringing out information about HIV and HIV prevention. And there, there were all sorts of interesting things going on too because Initially, it was seen as a, as a gay disease, so a lot of inmates wouldn't touch any literature that was aimed at gay inmates, let's say. So then um, it was decided that we need to put out literature, we mean in the city, whatever, put out literature uh, which talked about men who have sex with men and with women. And that way, um, you know, men were more likely to pick up the literature. And then we needed literature at different reading levels, including comic. So I was able to, in Spanish and English, I was in other languages, so I did the exploration, was able to, you know, get groups or find, you know, samples of that type of literature and, and bring that in. 
So the informational needs were very important for the inmates and recreational and um, what else? Um, just a weird little, little thing in that cliche there, educational. Um, Maybe you could talk to, I, I'm interested to know like how the DOC actually responded to, to HIV and AIDS. How, what was their kind of administrative response uh, to that? Okay, on the city or state, they're both, doesn't matter. I would say the city, that's where I generally work with more. Yeah, well, when AIDS first hit, uh, people didn't know how it was spread or what the cause was. It was seen as a gay disease, and gays were called homos. There's a lot of anti-gay sentiment throughout the system, and even in the, uh, even in the programming afterwards. I remember calling programs and saying, we accept our drug programs, residential. We accept everybody except arsonists and homosexuals. So there was a lot of discrimination. So when it was first said it was seen as a gay disease, and there was a very little concern, I mean, even Reagan, I mean, all the way through in, in dealing with it. Um, they established a couple units at Rikers, hospital units, for people who were um, HIV or, or actually had AIDS. I don't know if they even were able to detect people before they started showing symptoms. And these were like horrible, horrible uh, physical um, places. Um, I wrote about it, but it, it, when you went in, it was like, I remember it was like a concentration camp. You would see people lying on cots with torn blankets, broken windows, pigeon shit basically everywhere, and, and people like stint, uh, like um, pencil thin, just shivering in their beds. It was horrible. And uh, within the city system also, a lot of times they weren't being served because the staff were afraid to approach them. So they might put their food outside the area, and hopefully the guys were strong enough to get up and you know feed themselves. It, it was just horrendous, and the uh, officers wouldn't eat in the cafeterias because inmates were working preparing the food, so they started bringing their own lunches. Um, so it was pretty awful. <laughs> uh, we were able to go into the AIDS wards, um, and we did, and we brought books, and we, we read the inmates who couldn't hold the book, and we, um, you know, we, we did whatever we could. We spent, in fact, an entire day every week at the AIDS wards with the AIDS patients. Um, and eventually, one of my coworkers um, got really involved in advocating for them, and he got some donations like blankets or whatnot, and then he got some inmates to do an article, uh, I think for the Village Voice, where the inmates themselves spoke about what was happening, and that kind of shamed the department, and then they, uh, you know, built a much better facility for people with HIV or with AIDS. Similar in the state now to the, the state? The state was probably worse, right? I mean, there were horrible stories of what was going on in state facilities. Again, just even in the hospitals, I mean, just people being totally isolated and nobody serving them. Um, and just being so weak, they would just fall, you know, it was really awful. Yeah. Is there any other um, program that you want to talk about that you've developed? Well, just back in the AIDS thing, and it was interesting when. Um, it was, you know, realized that AIDS also affects people who were, uh, who had been drug addicts, like these drug addicts. It became more of a solidarity because the gay groups were doing the most, or the identifiable gay groups were doing the most in terms of fighting for drugs and fighting to, you know, make it into a public issue. So then, without, you know, within a short period of time, then you no longer heard the word homo anymore. It's almost as if the people who were drug addicted who weren't gay and those that weren't identified as gay, you know, felt a certain solidarity and a lot of the homophobia really did disappear, which is interesting because of uh, the need, you know. And in the prison system, this dynamic was even stronger. Um, well, well, I guess 
It was strong in terms of serving their needs and the awareness that they have to do something because AIDS can spread within prison as well. So there were even attempts to like, you know, have free condoms available, things of that sort, which many states or cities wouldn't allow, but New York to experiment on the city level at least. Can I ask you about the, the administrative support? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by that with the, the DOC. Like, how much support programming actually had when you were um, pushing around book cards or staff? Yeah, it really depended on the institution. Some were extremely supportive. I mean, they even had, uh, as part of their pre-release effort, they would have, I had a co-worker at the time, we would come and we'd give an orientation towards what, what the library can offer them when they come out, and we, at the same time we'd give them free copies of Connections. So there were certain people who were extremely supportive, and they were, uh, I forget how the hierarchy goes, these are, there were this program administrative and security staff at the same level, I forget they were called, but the, the one in charge of programming uh, was very important, and, and when they were supportive, it made a tremendous difference. And to the extent, you know, when they stayed in that particular position, if they moved on, something else might happen. Others were, um, most were neutral, and they just, you know, allowed you to do what you wanted to do without much supervision. And some were very um, opinionated in terms of what you could bring in, because we had pretty much no censorship, which is unusual. Um, but some officers may have been like, um, you know, um, say religious fundamentalists, and they didn't want certain books brought in, or they wanted more religious books, things of that sort. And that caused a pain sometimes because, you know, you, you, you know, if they say they shouldn't be reading detectives because they shouldn't be reading about crime, you know, what are you going to do? Well, how did you deal with that? I mean, how did that well, luckily, the, the one person who was the worst wasn't in, in the office very long. And I just ignored him, basically. Yeah. Because he wasn't, he didn't care enough to really observe what was going on. He just maybe took one walk to the library and that was it. And other times when I first started the adolescent facility, there was a wonderful library set up. And uh, what happened was the inmates would just be brought down and they'd sign in and then they'd be brought back. And the same officer was coming with me to buy books at Bookazine. And I had a huge budget, so we'd buy like thousands of dollars worth of books aimed at adolescents for his facility. And once when I was there, I remember what caught my attention was one of the inmates asked me for Treasure Island or something. And I said, sure, you know, ask, you know, let's get it for you. And it turned out, I mean, all the books that this guy was buying, he was just either selling or giving to his friends and what, whatnot. It was horrible. I mean, when I first, I was very naive in many ways. So, um, so you had you know, a range of staff. Uh, they always say the tone is set by the commissioner, and that's true to some degree also. So um, the amount of crime in the jails um, changed enormously. When I first went out, almost every time I visit, there'd be alarms and there'd be people being brought in stretchers and stabbings. And after a while, I think the big difference was when the commissioner decided that um, if you commit a crime within jail, it, 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 it might, if you say it's a felony, then you're going to be tried outside or whatever. So then the amount of violence in the jails really went down. And also the overcrowding. When I first went, there were maybe 100,000 turnover. And the population of Rutgers, I'm guessing, was like 23,000 or something. And now it's probably half that. So um, all of that helped out in terms of you know, diminishing the violence. Um, you mentioned about connections. Can can you tell us about what? Oh about? well, when I first took the job, I noticed somewhere that uh, I forget where I ran across it. Maybe in the files of my predecessor, but there was like a two-three page mimeograph sheet um, by I believe the Rochester Public Library, welcoming inmates back to the to Rochester, and it was gave the names of restaurants and I remember laundromat and things of that sort that could help them. And I thought, gee, what a great idea, you know, people coming out of jail and somebody acknowledging that they have special needs and, you know, they're probably disoriented at first. So I decided to write all the state prisons um, 
And that's interesting, too. When I started, there were maybe, say, 32 state prisons, and short period after, like, 70-something. It was, like, an enormous business. And also, the Rockefeller drug, drug laws were still in effect. So the vast majority of people being imprisoned were generally young, nonviolent, and drug offenders that needed programs, not jail. And um, even corrections admitted that if the programs are available, 70% of the inmates don't have to be imprisoned. So, um, I forgot what I was talking about, right? <laughs> the connections. Connections, okay. So I wrote to all these state prisons and to pre-release centers, whatever, and I asked if there'd be a need for uh, a book of resources for people coming out of prison, because the vast, vast majority of upstate prisoners came back to New York City. Um, so I got uh, every single institution responded extremely enthusiastically that they really, really could use such a program or such a, a resource guide. So then um, I started doing one. So I started doing one, and I I tested it out with um, with inmates and also with parole officers and with re uh, people in um, uh, working with rehabilitation drug programs or whatever to see if this is something that. They, they could make sense of, and especially the inmates, because they wanted a readability. And Spanish became an issue, too, because everybody, you know, Spanish-speaking people come from different backgrounds, and the same word means different things in different cultures. So I wanted to think to be readable and usable. And again, the response was really fantastic. So I went ahead and, and started, did the first edition of Connections. And um, it was sent, made available free to anyone who asked for it. Uh, and we started getting enormous amounts of letters and good response, so then it kept expanding. And then after a while, um, I did a, a job hunting section, just focusing on how to look for a job and what your rights are and how to avoid discrimination, how to get your record cleaned up, you know, things of that sort. I saw, I saw early copies of that thing. It was really, really slim. Yeah, it was. Back, back then, could you <laughs> yeah. talk about who were the, the people who were set up to do reentry programs in the city? And if it was like a coalition for Well, the only organization I knew at the time was like Fortune Society, and they've been around for a long time, and they were doing a lot of work with people coming out of prison. Um, and parole officers, I mean, because they work with people oftentimes who come out who are on parole, at least, and many people are on parole. They were a mixed bag also. I mean, some really didn't care that much about the work, and others were very caring and would even come to the library with some parolees and give them orientation and what the library can do for the parolees and stuff. Um, so in terms of, your question was in terms of starting it, um, so you know, I got in touch with the publisher and I worked with them and back then everything was, you know, big sheets of paper and editing, re-editing, so it took a while and um, I tried finding some interesting artwork and quotes so it wouldn't be dull looking and in terms of which chapters, um, there was some protest from some people in the library. First I had an inmate des um, design the cover and there's a lot of objection to, they found it, uh, I forget what, it made them uncomfortable so I had to change the cover. Um, for the library's sake. The library probably wouldn't have encouraged me to even write it if I didn't have a special supervisor uh, who really supported me and kind of went, you know, not straight path. So that I always appreciated. And then um, including a women's chapter and a gay chapter is somewhat controversial. A lot of people didn't see the need for a women's chapter. And back then, the popular image of prisoners was male, and people didn't think that much about, you know, women and their needs in prison. 
uh, in the gay chapter, people were so far out, they had no idea. But when I was in prison, I started realizing there were a lot of gay people <laughs> in prison, um, and they needed services too, and they had a, you know, special needs as well. So, I, you know, there wasn't enough protest, so I was able to put those two chapters in. Um, well, since we were mandated, um, they had no choice but to allow the service. Um, so that I did get support. As time went on, um, money was taken away from me. In other words, I used to, we'd get a certain amount from Albany, and all of it was going into the programs and the book materials, um, and I was being paid otherwise. As time went on, they started paying me from that money, so that diminished the amount of money I had available very, very much. So then I had to start depending even on donations of books from the branches and whatnot. Um, but generally, I'd say um, they, were, they were supportive um, and nobody cared enough to really investigate what I was doing or to come out to the jails, which in the long run was good for me. But um, it was curious to me that nobody, I mean, they supported me, but nobody, even my supervisors, didn't particularly want to come out and see what I was doing. Um, Are you working in a state level? Or well, this was city. State came later. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so, so the budget kind of um, took down a lot of my possibilities. But as time went on, they recognized the importance of the service. And to their credit, they started a seminar. We had a community outreach services, so we would have a seminar two or three times a year where any librarian could partake. And uh, one of the services we do was correctional facilities. So I was set up at the table, and all many librarians who chose to take that seminar uh, would be exposed to the idea of, oh, first on realize that the library is dealing with prisoners. Most of them didn't know. And then a lot of them were curious enough to want to volunteer to come out with me, which many did. And sometimes they brought programs. Sometimes um, some librarians started a program of reading to mothers and their infants, some children's librarians. And so the library started giving me more and more support, and connections was a big um, thing. Um, so they were proud of that. And then um, towards the end of uh, my stay at New York Public Library, um, you know, for budget reasons, whatever, it, it seemed like it was totally indispensable. Like, you know, there were times I had to fight for connections to continue, and also even for the service, not to be joined with other services and just kind of, you know, forgotten. So it's probably, not, I don't know if it's still an ongoing battle to get the attention, but, yeah. It, 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 it can be. Um, I think that's a major challenge, and I think you indicated um, what you're talking about, the major challenge is oftentimes budgets and people not um, not uh, caring to uh, to continue it in lean budget times. Um, but also the same sort of disregard for the program that allows you to do such creative things um, can also come back at you if, they don't have right, right, right. See, like, you know, you know, prisoners don't have much political power. So, I mean, again, on the city level, in terms of raising money for the library and publicity, they're not an important factor, even though there are enormous amounts of ex-prisoners all throughout the communities. Uh, but from the library's political point of view, it's not that big a priority oftentimes. And can you, can you share, like, why you think it's important that the library provides the services? Well, again, because so many members of our community have been incarcerated, and they're pretty much an invisible group of people, and they're up against enormous odds. I mean, first, they need work, and if you've been in jail, and if you're a minority, and if you're not that well-educated, you have drugs in your past, it's going to be very, very, very difficult to find a job to support yourself, not to speak of your family. And then there's discrimination and stigma. Um, if you're in jail, you're 
convict or inmate, whatever. And once you're out, you're an ex-inmate, ex-convict, whatever, ex-prisoner. And you know, to just have that identify identity is kind of ludicrous. You've done one, say you've done one thing in your life, you're now being defined totally by that one thing you did. You're no longer a loving father, uncle, brother, friend, you know, worker. I mean, all these things. You're just a prisoner, or you're an ex-convict, or ex-prisoner. Ex, you can make it sound pretty, but it's, you're an ex-something. And um, it's very unfair, because once you've done your time, you certainly should be a full human being again in, from a civil point of view. Um, so there's a lot of discrimination and stigma attached to coming out of jail. They need to find work. And then to readjust, which is where Connections comes in in the library, because uh, many prisoners, you don't have computers, at least when I was there, in any of the prisons, they weren't allowed. So if somebody's been in prison for 20 years, they come out, you know, they, they know from nothing. Uh, I've heard prisoners say that when they came out, they went to a restaurant. I mean, some stayed, said they stayed in their room in the YMCA for two weeks because they were afraid to go out. Others said they came out, they went to a restaurant, they opened up the menu, there were so many choices, they freaked out and ran out of the restaurant. Many didn't know how to use telephones uh, or modern telephones, so to speak. Uh, so there's a lot of need uh, to help prisoners readjust to the community. And then, so work and then readjustment on that level. And then on a personal level, um, you know, when a male prisoner goes upstate, um, he leaves oftentimes a family, so the, his spouse takes over the family and has the power, and that's the dynamic, and maybe there's resentment that this guy's in prison and they're being forced to go, undergo all these hardships. Then the guy gets out of prison and he wants to be, have the family again, and maybe the wife resents it. So I mean, there's so many things they have to deal with you know, when they come out of prison all at once. But you know, the main thing is needing work, and, and that's very hard. So the library, whatever the library can do to help, Inmates readjust, find information, get the resources, learn how to write resumes, learn how to uh, talk about their past and not talk about their past in prison, their drug. All of that stuff is extremely vital. And librarians, and they're not, it's not a recognizable group, as I say. So when somebody comes into the job information center, you're not going to say, I just got out of prison, you know, can you have me write a resume? So somehow you have to, you know, give them a connection at least if they ask or, or it's without saying this is for you because you've been in prison, but you know, interested in this book, it'll help you in certain ways. Are there, are there things that you miss about the, the job? Do you know, I thought I would, it's funny, I never burnt out, and I do it every single minute, because I guess I had different co-workers when I had co-workers, and um, I, I kept expanding the programs when there was money, and then we were given state prisons, so that got me all excited in a way. And then I worked with COPE, which is an organization which worked mainly with the, the entire prison system. Because working with the jails, I mean, people say, how can you do it? Don't you get depressed? Isn't it hopeless? And I never quite felt that, but I did feel that, it, you know, there's so much need. And I'm only affecting maybe a very small number of people, even though those I'm in contact with are going to be at all affected by anything I do or say. Um, so COPE organization um, was kind of an organization that dealt with the prison system as a whole, like the criminal justice system. And they would take, uh, they would deal with like censorship, they would deal with bringing more education into the prisons by volunteer professors or whatever, um, encouraging uh, inmates to do discussion groups. And then they came with the idea of um, like readiness, like as soon as you get into prison, you should start working on rehabilitating yourself when you get out. And that's kind of common now, but back then it, it was a kind of really novel idea. So um, by working with COPE, I felt I was able to tackle, you know, the system as a whole in a more effective way while at Rikers, you know, I was just working with individuals. Can you tell us what you have learned over the years? 
Well, I learned, well, learned lots. Um, I'd never really, I mean, aside from a couple of times when I was in jail or something, I, I had probably unconscious stereotypes of prisoners. So for one thing, meeting so many prisoners over the years and realizing the tremendous variety, the tremendous, um, you know, just the abilities and the waste of these people being in jail. And, uh, and there's no stereotype of prisoners. I mean, they come college educated, illiterate, street smart, I mean, everything under the book. But basically, just for most of them, a tremendous waste that they're behind bars. Um, so that's kind of one thing I learned very strongly. The other thing was um, I learned from them as I brought them whatever I could. I mean, I learned enormous amounts from the prisoners, and it helped me grow. So was I was intimidated and afraid of certain things when I first went to prison. By the time I left, I was much more confident and, you know, much better connections with the prisoners. Um, what are the things that you learned from them? Well, first, I, I learned, I was able to individualize prisoners more, and I learned very much about the, the plight of being in prison, which it's all about, and also that um, so many of them were so absolutely smart, even though uneducated in terms of schooling. And, I mean, you know, it's a common trope in a way that, you know, drug dealers, they could be business people, and it's very true. I mean, so many prisons were just so clever in so many ways, uh, and such ability, and yet, I mean, even if it's just oral ability, when you think of in high schools, like people that know how to rap. I mean, rap is an art form, and but that's in, in in schools you're judged by you know written more or less. So there's no recognition of, of this person has enormous amount of talent and needs recognition. So in jails, there's just so much um, you know talent and humanity and, and just so many so much potential that is just thrown into prisons and lost, and uh, it's it's really tragic. Yeah. And I also learned that, you know, the way the whole criminal justice system is so skewed against minority people is, again, you know, a young white kid that steals a bicycle will get, uh, will get, will, will get uh, uh, bail, let's say, and then they'll have the local minister or uh, teachers or whatever vouch for him when he goes to court, and they'll probably never spend a day in jail, whereas a young black kid who steals a bicycle will get lost in the system and come out a very different person. It's really very, very unfair. And prisoners are very aware of that. I mean, I mean they always, many of them always claim I'm innocent, uh, which you have to take with a big grain of salt. Uh, but on the other hand, they are, many of them are victims of this racist system, and, uh, and they're very aware of the injustices, and even getting lawyer representation. I mean, a lot of the lawyers, I used to go out by bus, and a lot of times the legal aid lawyers would be on the bus and we talk. Many of them, like teachers in New York, they start very idealistically. It's not a high-paying job, so they go into it largely for idealism. And in a short period of time, they're totally burned out and they hate their jobs, but they're still doing it. And many inmates don't get to see their lawyer until the day of court. And uh, so it's really, it, you know, parole officers the same. Um, they have to be police as well as rehabilitation people, and you can't wear both hats at once. So that's one big problem with parole. The other is maybe years ago they had like 10 people to follow up and now they might have 50. And there's no way, if they do want to re-arrest, it's going to take enormous amounts of time. So they can't pay much attention to really helping uh, people on parole, you know, get back on their feet. So the system is almost, you know, you know set up to just produce failure after failure or people going back to jail all the time. Did you ever get burnt out? Uh, no, I don't know why. <laughs> I have high energy or something. How do you envision a more just or fair justice system? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> What's interesting, the people who define crime are usually the white middle class. So I remember there's a, remember the film with um, 
what's his name, um, Michael Moore, where he goes to Wall Street and takes a, a priest, what's it called, a yellow tape that says um, crime, scene of crime, crime scene, and starts going around the building. So, I mean, you know, the real criminals are, you know, the war criminals like you know, Nixon and, and the presidents and, you know, what they're doing. Or even, you know, the bankers. I mean, these are the real But whose defining crime is, in public view, is like street crime. So you're not going to lay you down and you steal a pocketbook. I mean, it's nothing to brag about, but I mean, that prison is how you see crime. And it's so the criminal justice system is really punishing so many people um, for long, long terms that are too long and in ways which are really are prejudicial uh, in terms of what crime is really like in our society. Um, and then the jails, the prisons were very much a business and still are. So as soon as they built a prison, they want to fill it up. And I used to visit prisons in upstate New York, and just incredible experiences. I mean, you go to a very small town in the middle of nowhere, and most of the people working in the prison come from the town, and they've been working, in some cases, two or three generations, you know, with the jails. And if you come in as an outsider, it's like a white civil rights worker going south in the 60s, you're really looked at by the whole town, like, what are you doing here? And, um, and the prisons are, um, are just there to make money, basically, and to, and to keep these towns surviving. And that's why they... When Cuomo doubled the amount of prisons, there was a public um, referendum, and New Yorkers voted against expanding the prison system, and they just ignored it. And suddenly there were twice as many prisons. And again, most of the people going to prison were young, first-time offenders and um, drug problems. These are Rockefeller laws. And most politicians back then thought the Rockefeller laws were draconian, but they were too cowardly to say, you know, this doesn't make sense, because you know, soft on crime is, a, is something you want to be tainted with. And the other thing, interesting corrections, is over the years there's, there's a motive, like punishment, it's like a pendulum, so it's between punish, throw away the key, and then um, rehabilitate. And if you look at, I remember reading an article, like even American Correction Association, like the proceedings of their annual convention and stuff, um, you had very progressive ideas back in the 1910s and 20s, like Anna Cross Center, named after a woman commissioner. And I believe she had programs which uh, were mothers um, and their children were also... Um, in jail together, you know. And you know, so when it happens in the 60s, when I was there in the 80s, it was seen as so revolutionary, and it isn't. I mean, it's just those programs have been around, and the ideas have certainly been around, and oftentimes when the programs work, they're not expanded. There's no interest or supposedly no money, uh, and that's really tragic. And most of the programs are very token. They had wonderful programs, not only the mothers and children reading to them, but um, like uh, very famous chefs came in from New York City, and we trained the inmates how to uh, be good chefs. And they started a program when they get out called Catering by Conviction. It's a cute name. But, you know, this affected maybe 15 inmates out of maybe 600 that wanted to be in the program. And it gets a lot of publicity. It makes the jails look good. And then the following year, no one's heard of it again. So, I mean, it's really crazy. <laughs> so, do you have any more questions? Um, um, I talk to you all day, but I wonder if there's anything that we didn't cover in this interview that you'd like to... Um, like to oh, let's see. Well, one thing I noticed in the jails is that uh, it's so important for libraries to uh, um, make inmates aware of what the libraries are and what they can do. I'm sure this has changed to some degree, but when I first went into the jails, I'd ask people, people say, from Mothaven or somewhere, and, you know, I have, as a my part of my training, I visited many of the branches, if not all the <laughs> branches. So I'd, I'd ask them about their library, and they'd say, well, it's Mott Haven, and um, have you been there? Are you, are you there? No, I don't go to the library. And why don't you go to the library? Because I owe them a book. 
from 15 years before, when they were kids, and they're afraid to go back to the library. And then the library to them is only a place that has books. And if they're an uncomfortable reading or don't want to read a book, why go to the library? They had no idea that your job information center, your CSL, I mean, I mean even videos at the time. Uh, so it was like an eye-opener to realize that inmates really, really need to be uh, informed of what the library can do for them, because they never think of the library as a major source of helping to get out. I'm sure that's changed a lot, but... <laughs> yeah, to a certain extent, I mean, that's one of the major, um, uh, kind of, the, the messaging that we always have on our, on our, on our talks when we go into the jails is that we ask them about where, where the neighborhood library is, and oftentimes we'll hear, I haven't been to a library in Yeah. And the questions are, why, why not, don't you know what library has this, this, this Even through a computer, I mean, right. so many things, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's so, so important to, to bridge people back into their communities through a support like the library. Yeah. Because it just has so much. And um, to conclude, uh, could you share with us like a memory or a happy anecdote from Well, I guess a happy anecdote is uh, like meeting people outside of prison. Uh, oftentimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative. Uh, I'll start, a negative one would be, there was a fellow that used to work with me in the sentence facility at Rikers. He was in and out all the time, but when he was in the library, he loved working in the library. And they, you know, people like working in the library for a lot of reasons. Might be because they really like books. Might be because it gives them prestige. It gives them a way of getting out of their cell. It gives them a way of, of sneaking notes in the books to communicate with other people. I mean, you can't worry about that. But anyway, so this guy, uh, I retrained him initially, and he was a great, great library help. In the, in the, and every time. He'd come back to jail, he'd come to the library, and he'd start working immediately. And then once I was there in Times Square somewhere, and I heard someone shout out, librarian, librarian, so I turn around, and it's him. And he's caked with about two inches of filth. He's obviously living in the streets. It was so awful, because I knew that every time he comes back to the jail, he's going to thrive, you know, if you can call it thriving. And yet he can't survive on the outside. So that's kind of a sad story. The good stories are meeting people again in the streets saying, oh, and recognizing me and saying that, you know, the first book they read was a book I gave them or, or they have a job now or, or connections helping to this or that. And then that, that went on with some frequency, you know, so that was kind of gratifying. Well, thank you so much for the Okay, thank you. It's been a great interview.